Hey, this is Brian Golden, lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I also really want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And I want to let you know that now you can watch these messages as well, anytime and anywhere. And the easiest way to do that is on the Centerpoint Church app. In addition to that, the Centerpoint app is also the easiest way to stay connected with what's happening at Centerpoint. So go to your favorite app store, search Centerpoint Church Florida, and you'll find it right there. Most importantly, I really want to say if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just investigating who Jesus is, I really hope this message encourages you to take your next step in your journey of faith or in your journey of investigating faith. Thanks again for listening. Um, But this is probably going to be one of the hardest messages I'm ever going to preach. And I can tell you the enemy is hating on it because he has been here all morning trying to slow things down. Um, And Bryant and I decided years ago that we would be his worst enemy when it comes to mental illness and suicide, that we would make him fight like hell to try to shut us up because we weren't going to this side of heaven. And so I want to let you guys know that um, I am praying over each one of you specifically. We have been for weeks. Um, Some of you need to be freed up. Some of you need to be comforted, and it's going to be a great morning. But I don't want you to be afraid to talk back to me a little bit, all right, because I don't want to feel alone. So North Campus, this is for you too. Y'all, I know it's simulcast over there, but it's live, so you make sure you respond. South Campus, cheer them on. Make sure they know. That's it. We got you, North. All right, I'm going to pray over this morning if that's okay with you guys. And then um, (laughs) bottoms up, right? We're going to go right into this. All right, Jesus, we love you. And we just pray that you would do your thing this morning. The enemy's already tried to silence us in so many ways and distract us and discourage us. And I'm just asking that you would take him far away. And Lord, we have so many people in this building and at North Campus who have been touched by mental illness and have been touched by suicide. And Jesus, I just pray that this morning, your peace, we just sang about it, would flood over people's hearts and minds. And that you would bring healing, that you would bring comfort Lord, that you would make a difference in people's lives this morning. For those who are walking in here who are struggling, who are contemplating suicide, I pray that they would walk out of here with a new lease on life, so confident in the future that you have for them. And so, Jesus, we ask you to do your thing, and we'll be ready for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on January 4th, around 5.45 p.m. this year, my brother Eric Garland committed suicide. And it was probably one of the most devastating things I have ever had to walk through and experience in my life. And I want to talk to you a little bit today about his story, because here's what I know about my brother. He would want it told. He would want you to know that there is hope, but here's the thing, you have to fight for it. And he would want you to know there's peace, but it doesn't come for free. And while his story ends sad, yours does not need to today. But here's what you're going to have to decide. You are going to have to decide how much your healing and your health matters. How much you're going to fight for it and go after it, no matter what it costs you. That's what you're going to have to decide this morning. It's interesting because my brother and I grew up in a lot of the same scenarios. And we had a lot of the same issues. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I battle with anxiety and depression and borderline personality disorder. I've been in um, counseling now for about nine or 10 years with the same counselor, he's a gem. And um, so Eric and I faced a lot of the same issues. The difference is, 
is how we went about them. Eric had a lot of anger issues that he never wanted to deal with. And for as much as I tried to talk to him and say, listen, bud, there's healing, there's health. You can fight through this. You can get to the other side of it. He did not want to deal with those issues. And so his story ends very differently than my story ends. And I can tell you this. Some of you are in very, very dark seasons right now, and I'm not dismissing those. I've been there. Even still, there's times where death seems like a really viable option for me. You're tired. You're exhausted. You are just over hurting and battling the same thing over and over and over again. You don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see it getting better for you. And in those dark moments, it's very easy to think that death is the best solution. But here's what I want you to grab a hold of, North and South Campus, is that those are moments and those are seasons. And you have to do everything you can to fight through those moments and those seasons because your mental illnesses and your feelings are going to lie to you over and over and over again. And if Satan can weaken you in that moment and snuff your life out, the power is gone. And Jesus can't use your story to bring honor and glory to himself and healing and life to somebody else. And so you have to stay strong in those moments. I want to tell you this too. I have a number of friends who have attempted suicide and lived. And if you're contemplating this morning, what I would love for you to do is to try to find people who have walked through this same situation, attempted and lived, because I can bet you, if you ask them if they're happy to be alive today, their answer would be yes. We get in these moments of weaknesses And we think death is the only answer, and it's not. Life, Jesus, hope, those are the answers. And so I want to reiterate this morning that as I tell Eric's story, and then in a little while we're going to bring Dave and Stacey Chamberlain up here, and they're going to tell Savannah's story a little bit for you. Their stories end very sadly. But yours doesn't need to end that way. Your siblings doesn't need to end that way. Your child's doesn't need to end that way. Your spouse's story doesn't need to end that way. Your friend's story doesn't need to end that way. There is hope, there is hope, there is hope, and that's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Do not let Eric's story define you. Don't let his story define you, lowercase h. You need to let his story define you. And it's what we talked about last week. Do not get so wrapped up in your stigmas and your shame and the struggles that you're having that you can't see what Jesus Christ sees when he looks at you, even in your deepest, darkest moments. And I'll tell you what or who he sees. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees a life that he died for, that he sent his son to die for. He sees a life that has potential and power to change the world. And don't you lose sight of that in those dark moments. And don't you give up in those dark moments. You fight through them. And so I want to read you something I wrote a couple of months ago. Um, Because some of this, and you're going to have to bear with me, this is a rough go for me. Um, Some of this I'm going to have to read because of the nature of it, and some of it I'm going to preach. Are you guys okay with that? North, are you good? All right. So I want to read you my brother's story, okay? It was 1.30 a.m., I guess. I know it was around that time, and I could go back and look at my phone, but I'd rather not. So let's just go with 1.30 a.m., I woke up to Bryant standing on the side of the bed, looking at his phone and saying, your parents are calling. Immediately rolled over and grabbed my phone. I called my mom back with a pit in my stomach. 
My mom answered and said, hi, honey, I'm going to give the phone to dad. She was super calm, and so I exhaled a bit. My dad got on the phone and said, hi, sweetheart. Again, super calm. Now I realized they were in shock. I replied, is everything okay? And he answered, no, it's not. My stomach dropped, and I sat up. He said, my brother's name, and my world started spinning. Rewind a few years ago to when Eric was diagnosed with shingles. That's when he was first introduced to opioids. The shingles were awful for him, but honestly, I don't remember him complaining much. Since the shingles came back with a vengeance, he was able to continue to refill his prescription. It's hard to know how everything went down after that, but what I will say is that opioids are nasty and addictive, and he had an addictive personality. So it was a horrific combination. Back in October of 2017, Eric got diagnosed with cancer. My dad called me on a Wednesday night and told me. I was standing in the kitchen and bent over the counter because I felt like someone had punched me in the stomach. Eric called me the next day sobbing. I sat on the floor and cried. So did Bryant. That Friday, I got a call from my dad saying there was a warrant out for Eric's arrest. Bottom line, he had deceitfully gotten his hands on a lot of painkillers from a few veterinarians. The judge sentenced him to 21 days of rehab. He was so embarrassed initially. He didn't want anyone to know. He was suicidal and so discouraged. I tried to be at his beck and call. I was scared. At one point, he sent me a text and said my dad and I were the only two keeping him alive. Once he got to San Antonio, rehab was amazing for him. He was the most clear-minded in himself I've heard him in years. We talked every few days, and he would pour out his heart. But rehab was only 21 days. In my opinion, he was thrust back into reality way too soon. A few weeks later, he started prepping for surgery to remove the kidney. After his surgery, he was in pain. He wasn't sleeping well, and life just got tough. He left his family one weekend to Uber a few hours away. He called me and my parents and said he wanted to commit suicide. He said he was done with life, tired. We were on pins and needles and on the phone with him, talking and texting for hours, trying to keep him alive. Fast forward to the summer of 2018. Eric and I had our last long conversation. He was incredibly honest. Things were not good. He was struggling emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but he was willing to try. He and I didn't speak on the phone again until that fall. He called my dad and had a good conversation with him. He was calling me now to apologize for the constant lying. I was frustrated because I felt like he was being flippant, but I told him I forgave him, and he said he forgave me too. But that conversation has haunted me. I was frustrated after the phone call. My counselor had advised me to set up appropriate boundaries with my brother. He was a self-proclaimed liar. He lied about everything, and he was hurtful. And while I was willing to take just about anything from him, at times it just got to be too much. And so we went on a sort of radio silence. Maybe we talked after that. I can't remember. What I can remember is a text about a month or two before he died. He said, hey, you know I love you, right? I just want you to know I love you. I remember I got so scared when he sent that to me. He told me he wasn't suicidal. He was working for UPS and had a lot of time to think and wanted to make sure I never doubted how much he loved me. He texted me again on Christmas Day, said he loved me. and We were in a group text a few days after Christmas, and that was the last I heard from him. And so knowing everything I do about my brother, when my dad got halfway through rehearsing the events of my brother's day, I stopped my dad and said, Dad, I have to stop you. Is he okay? And my dad's next four words have replayed in my head since that January 5th morning. Sweetheart, he hung himself. As soon as I had the wherewithal to think, I told Bryant to make sure Eric had not tried to call me. Even now, I get sick about this. I was hoping beyond hope he didn't try to call me, and somehow I missed it. 
and then I was so heartbroken that he didn't try to call. I had talked him off the ledge so many times, and in his last few hours, he didn't try to call anyone. He was resolved. He was done. He was in so much pain and was so disappointed in himself that he figured the only way to find relief and to give those he loved a fighting chance was to take his own life. Eric's life was fragmented. At different seasons, you never quite knew which Eric you were going to talk to. Sometimes he was so kind and so funny. Other times he was angry. And still others, he was distant. The pills offered some form of wholeness, calmness, if only for a moment. And then his fragmented life just overwhelmed him. He didn't know how to hold everything together anymore. And so suicide was a form of escape. And that's what I think it is for so many. They get to such a dark place that they cannot see a way out. I know Eric knew that Jesus works miracles and saves and redeems. I just think he didn't know how and couldn't see it happening for him. Like he was too far gone. And like I said, I think he was tired. He was worn down. He was beat down. He was exhausted. I know my brother had to have blacked out the last hour or two of his life because he loved life. He loved his wife and babies. But here's what else I believe. The moment, and I mean the moment, he walked out that door for the last time. Jesus followed him. And Jesus wept for my brother, but he stood there waiting. And when Eric breathed his last breath, Jesus grabbed a hold of him and took him to heaven. How do I know this? Because Eric knew Jesus as his savior and because Jesus gave me this vision a day or two after Eric died. And so I want to talk to you this morning about a couple things about suicide that I think the church needs to know because we need to fight against this epidemic that's happening across our nation and the world. And so the first thing I want you to understand about suicide is that it's a misconception. It's not like any other form of death. You have absolutely no closure. I'm reading a book right now when I can handle it, and it talks about the fact that um, when someone goes to commit suicide, they're making the most important decision in their entire life. And usually with the most important decisions in our lives, we talk to our loved ones about those, don't we? We go over it with them. We work through the nitty gritties. We hash it out. And yet when it comes to suicide, when someone truly resolves that this is going to be what they're going to do, there is something that flips in their psyche and where they almost become a different person for the last few hours of their life. Um, In fact, a lot of studies have shown that they're the most peaceful they've ever been because they've resolved that this is the end for them. And so they have to shut off anyone and everyone who loves them because they know that those people will fight for them if they understand that's the action they're going to take. And so the line that I read in this book that just kind of slapped me across the face was, um, I can't do anything to change Eric's mind at this point. Um, I can't try to talk him out of it. It's too late. It happened. The only thing that I can do in this situation is disagree with his decision. And I have to somehow come to peace with that, that that's the only thing I can do. I'm a fixer. I'm someone who wants to help. And I many times sacrificed myself for my brother in order to do that. And so when he commits this kind of decision, when he commits suicide, to be left with all I can do is disagree is really difficult for me. And so you don't have any closure. The other thing is, is that you get very, very angry. (laughs) And um, if you've walked through grief, you know that's one of the steps. I don't think they go in order. Honestly, they've not gone in order for me. They get all jumbled up. Um, But I remember going to counseling a few weeks ago and telling Kevin, like, I'm angry. And he actually had a party for me. He's like, you're progressing in the grief cycle. (laughs) I was, like, so proud of myself. Like, okay, North, you can laugh. South is laughing. It's fine. Um, We all need to take a little breath here. Um, But you get very, very angry. And 
I think because I'm someone who battles mental illness and someone who's contemplated suicide, I haven't wanted to get angry with Eric. I've wanted to be understanding of his struggle. And so you end up getting angry at everybody else. And this is a lot of times when families get torn apart because you wanna start pointing the finger at each other. You just have this anger you don't know what to do with. The deceased is gone. Like, what's the point of being angry with them? And so you're taking it out on each other and you start playing blame games. And this is when families get torn apart. And I'd lie to you and say, if that wasn't something I've battled with, even personally, is not getting angry at other people and really having to ask Jesus to heal my heart in that way. But you get so angry. I think the other thing is, and this is something I honestly just came to a few weeks ago. I um, had um, gotten a text and it had wrecked my world in relation to this with Eric. And I was sitting on our back porch and I just fell apart. And Bryant sat down next to me and I just kept saying, like, I failed him. I let him down. I failed him. I let him down. And I've had to work through this over the past few months because I keep feeling like I'm letting people down. And I drew the connection to, I felt as though I had let Eric down. Where was I when he needed me the most? Why hadn't I called him up at that point? Why hadn't I been more present? And all the answers were because I had to take care of myself. And we know that, right? You know that listening on the outside. But I remember Bryant saying something to me very calmly. And I needed to hear it, but it was so hard to hear. And and maybe some of you who have walked through this with your loved ones need to hear this too. Eric wasn't the victim here. He made the choice. He chose this. And for as hard as that is for us to wrap our minds around and swallow, this was his decision. I had nothing to do with this. And I think some of us need to hear that this morning because we've carried that guilt for so long. We've carried that burden of there's more that we could have done. And this was his decision. And I think it's something to remark on too is that our culture is so fixated with the immediate, with quick and easy fixes, that anymore, those of us who struggle with mental illness or any kind of something that we're working through or fighting through, whatever that may be, if it doesn't get healed, if it doesn't get taken care of, if it's not out of our lives quickly, we're done. We give up. We walk away. We commit suicide. We self-medicate. We do whatever we need to do to get through it quickly. And so I really truly believe that's one reason why suicides become such an epidemic in our culture, because we just want quick fixes. And if we can't get it, and if if we don't want to fight, we don't want to do the hard work. We just want to be done. And so this was his decision. This wasn't my decision for him. He's not the victim. He chose this. Those of us who are left picking up the pieces, honestly, we're the victims. We're the ones who have to figure out how to keep living with someone who was a major part of our lives not there anymore. Eric didn't choose his be- God's best for him. He didn't. And I had to come to realize that and accept that. You feel so guilty when someone commits suicide? I've been listening to several um, interviews by Kay Warren. I don't know Rick and Kay Warren, Purpose Driven Life. If you've grown up in any kind of church world, you've heard of the Purpose Driven Life. Their son shot himself in 2013, and she's become a major proponent for um, mental illness and suicide prevention. So anything you can get your hands on with her, do it. And I started listening to a lot of interviews, and I think this is so intriguing what she said, and I loved it. it. She said this, mental illness puts families in these untenable situations in which you don't have any good choices. In her story, her son got a hold of a gun illegally, 
and said that if they called the police, he would put himself in a situation where the police had to shoot him. Or if they tried to come over and take it from him, he'd shoot himself before they got there. And so they didn't know what to do. They lived for months knowing that he had this gun and weren't sure what to do. And that's what mental illness does to people and to loved ones. It puts you in really difficult situations. And for a lot of us, for me, I had to set up boundaries of protection against my brother. I wanted to be there for him as much as I could, but I also knew I have three small kids. I have a husband. We have a ministry. And there were seasons in my life where he was taking so much out of me. It was physically hindering me um, and keeping me from even getting out of bed in the morning. And so um, Kevin and Bryant were just like, listen, you have to really set up these boundaries. You love your brother. You're there for him, but you can't do the work for him. And this is what I want to tell those of you who are walking through a mental illness with someone. Boundaries are not the enemy. Those of us with mental illness, boundaries are not the enemy. You have to fight. Your loved ones can't make these decisions for you. Your loved ones can't do the hard work for you. And it's so easy to misinterpret the boundaries as though your loved ones don't love you. And that's not the case at all. Just sometimes we need a swift kick in the butt to say, you know what, this is my problem. I've got to fight. I've got to deal with this. I've got to put my big girl or big boy pants on. And I've really got to try to move through this to the healing that I'm so desperate to have. And so boundaries are not the enemy, but we wrestle with that when we set those up. The next thing is suicide's unfair, isn't it? (laughs) The person who wanted the death, the person who chose the death, they're gone. And now those of us who are alive are left to pick up all the pieces and try to keep living without this person in our lives, with this gaping hole in our lives. And it's so unfair. And what I have to tell you is, is that those of you who are survivors of suicide, and what that means is if your loved one or friend has committed suicide and you're left, you have to live. You have to live. You have to move forward. You can't keep replaying those conversations in your mind. You can't keep thinking about those boundaries that you did or didn't set up. You can't keep replaying all of that in your mind. That's not going to bring the person back, and that's not going to do anything for you. You have to live. You have to move forward. You go after the healing that person was so desperate to have. You go after that life that person wanted to live. And you don't be silent about their story. People need to hear it. They need to know. They need to know the devastation of suicide. They need to know the hope that Jesus Christ has and offers. They need to hear your story. And so you tell it. Don't you let the enemy silence you. He's silencing too many people. He's keeping us locked tight because this is something that he's using to take life after life after life. And church, we've got to stop being silent and we have to tell our stories. One more thing about the suicide misconception point is this. It's not the unpardonable sin. And some of you need to hear that this morning. When you study scripture, the unpardonable sin had to do with self-righteousness, okay? The fact that you get to a point where you're like, I don't need Jesus Christ in my life. He's not going to need to be my savior. And so you never accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. That's the unpardonable sin, which that makes sense, doesn't it? It's not suicide. Scripture is very, 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 very clear. Okay, I could add another very. That when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you are forever safe in the hands of God. There's not a blasted thing you can do to get out of those hands. 
And I wanna read a couple of scriptures to you this morning because some of you need to hold on to these. And I'm not gonna lie to you, when Eric committed suicide, I had one of those old school church moments because it used to be a thing in the church where if someone committed suicide, um, a lot of people believed they went straight to hell. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I can tell you that right now. And for us to tell families who are struggling and walking through the grief to question whether or not their loved one is in heaven because of this decision they made, Anyways, I have some strong feelings about that. So I wanted to spell that myth for us this morning. I hope, North, you're still with me. We're kind of quiet over here, but I get it. I know, it's a tough go. All right, South, you with me? (laughs) They're like, we're we're hanging on by a string here. All right, Psalm 139, 7 through 12, it says this. I can never, and I'm reading from, I believe I took these from The Message, Um, So if you're like, this isn't my KJV, who even uses KJV anymore? This isn't my NIV or my message or my CRV or whatever. I'm pretty sure it's from the message, Um, which my bad for not jotting that down. Forgiveness, please. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. I go up to heaven, you're there. I go down to the grave. In other translations, it says Sheol, which is a form of hell. You're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me, which that's what people do when they commit suicide, isn't it? They're asking the darkness to hide them. And the light around me to become night. But what does it say? Even in the darkness, can you read this with me? I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Romans 8, 31 through 38, and this is out of the message. It says this, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us? Who who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us when we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced, can you read this with me? That nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Keep reading. North, read with me. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above and the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us. Read it with me. From the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's celebrate that, north and south. Let's celebrate it, amen. Let's celebrate that. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ when you have placed your hope and trust and faith in him. And so my brother is alive and well in heaven. We're gonna meet with Dave and Stacy in a minute. Their daughter, Savannah, she's alive and well in heaven. And I don't ever want you to doubt that. 
I want to say this to those of you who have attempted suicide and survived, okay? This same love, this same forgiveness, this same hope, this same power, this is available to you as well. And you need to forgive yourself. You need to accept the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given you. And you need to move forward and live with your life. Do not let the enemy speak lies into your mind. Do not let him keep you held hostage to that one weak moment decision that you made. You move on with your life. And you know what? You tell your story. People need to know you got to the darkest place in your life. You wanted death. And Jesus swooped in. He prevented that from happening because he has a hope and a future for you. And you go live your life and you go tell your story and you go silence the enemy on this issue of suicide. Number two, suicide's an epidemic. It's rattling our world right now. And more than ever, we're seeing a number of church leaders and pastors commit suicide. We're seeing a lot of moms leave their babies and commit suicide. I mean, none of us, I don't think, in fact, can we just be honest? If you've been touched by suicide in some way, whether it was a family member or a friend or someone you know that you're walking through this with, would you just raise your hand for me, north and south? Just take a look around for a second. Just look around, keep your hands up. It's an epidemic, friends. It's all over the world. Satan lies. Anytime you contemplate or attempt or commit suicide, I want to promise you this. That was from the enemy. That was from him. That was not from your Savior. Because the enemy knows we're dangerous. When we go from mental illness to mental health, when we have a story, he knows we're dangerous. And so he doesn't just want to wound us temporarily. No, he wants to silence us permanently. And suicide's his best option. Shame, guilt, those are other things he uses to silence us from telling our stories. Because how powerful is it when someone says, I'm going to get help, I'm going to fight, and they turn their back to generational baggage, and they say, I'm going to move forward in health, and I'm going to tell my story. How powerful is that? That's something the enemy has a hard time fighting against. I'll never forget, um, and I don't know if we've told this from this stage. Bryant's here with me. Um, Sorry, North. He's with me because I wasn't sure if I was going to make it through this message. (laughs) And we're still not through it, so Jesus, take the wheel. But um, I can't remember if I told this back in October or not, but um, when we were in the midst of my battle, and it was dark, um, I remember one night trying to fall asleep around midnight um, because I was teaching at the time, and I'd get home from school, and we'd fight for several hours. Um, and he wasn't fighting against me. He was fighting for me because I would get to this point where I could not think rationally anymore. And so I'd get into this irrational state and I would hurt myself. I'd try to hurt him and I just could not think clearly. And so that's part of what borderline personality does to you. And so, um, basically what he would have to do is just, um, hunker down until I, like a toddler wore myself out. I'm not kidding. If you've walked through mental illness with anyone, you understand this. Um, so often it's, it's extra burn of energy. They have to work through. Um, and then once they exhaust themselves, then they can start to hear truth. It's such a weird phenomenon. And so, Um, I had finally fallen to bed at midnight. I think he was downstairs in the kitchen doing something, probably trying to eat. I don't know, because he was busy keeping me alive for that time. And I woke up out of a deep sleep, and I started screaming. And he came running up to the room and was like, what's wrong? And um, I said, 
I had the worst dream. <laughs> and um, I was never a vision person. Okay, I was never a dream person. I grew up very um, fundamental, Baptist, legalistic. So visions, dreams, those were from Satan or pizza or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> you understand. And um, after walking through this journey, I no longer feel that way. I feel like Jesus gives us dreams and visions. And... Um, and so I told him, I said, I had this awful dream where I was falling into this black hole. If you had those dreams where you're falling, it's the worst feeling ever. And I was falling into this black hole. There was nothing I could do to get out of it. And then I just kept hearing this voice. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And in my dream, I woke up in my dream. It's still my dream, but I woke up and I went running downstairs to try to get Bryant. But when I went running towards him, this same person who was saying, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, who was dressed in all black and very creepy, grabbed my feet and pulled them out from underneath me. And then the same black person dressed in black was holding on to Bryant so he couldn't get to me either. And that's when I woke up. And I told Bryant this, and I'm watching his face, and his fa- he turns all white, and I'm like, okay, what have I done? Have I freaked you out completely? Or what, where are we at here? And he was like, I had that same exact dream. And needless to say, we went to counseling the next day. <laughs> We're like, we are psycho. <laughs> and um, Kevin said, um, he said, that was from the enemy. <laughs> and that person in black in your dream was the enemy. And he said, He's trying to silence you because he knows what you're trying to do with Centerpoint Church. And this is what's really ironic about all of this. Like when we're in counseling and working through all of this, um, Centerpoint Church is only about a year old. Bryant had only been lead pastor for a couple of months. We maybe, I'm being generous here when I say had 50 people. <laughs> like that's generous, <laughs> including kids and volunteers. And we maybe counted the volunteers twice. I don't know. But um, one campus and... Um, he was trying to snuff us out then. Because would you look at us now? And it has nothing to do with numbers or campuses. It has everything to do with people. But when we started, when it took us a while to get to the point where we wanted to share our story because we wanted to make sure we were ready to handle the enemy's not going to sit by, you know? And so... Um, what Jesus has done with our church, we're two campuses, four services, close to 1,000 people. We're online, we're on radio, and this message about mental illness and hope and suicide is reaching thousands upon thousands of people. Amen. And I would just ask you that you would continue to pray over our church with this because we want to be a beacon and a light. We want to take a stand against this, but the enemy is not going to sit back and watch that happen. And so would you join forces with us in praying over that, over our church for that, that we would continue to take a stand with this. And I want to tell you this, for those of you who are contemplating right now, because at North and South, I know there's people in this room, and you're fighting a very silent battle. And so often with suicide, um, we don't let people know it's coming. We'll maybe let the people in our inmost circles know, but I'll never forget it, Eric's funeral um, his friends coming up to me and saying, I had no idea, I had no idea. He never led on to anything. And so some of you are contemplating and getting ready to attempt, and we have no idea. We have no idea. But I need to tell you this. 
your life is worth fighting for. And you may not feel like it is, but I can promise you it is. And you need to, I need to check my clock. You need to run towards people who are willing to fight with you and for you, no matter what it's going to cost them. You need to run to community. And some of you are going to be specifically called by Jesus to walk through mental illness with someone. And that's not for everyone. That is a specific calling. I'm thinking of my husband. I'm looking over here at Miss Jean. You could hear their story. It is a calling. I'm looking at the Chamberlains. It is a calling. It is a calling. You guys can go ahead and come walk up here if you want to. Because it is not easy. But you are going to be Jesus Christ to this person when they need it the absolute most. And for those of you who are fighting for your life right now, if you are walking with someone that's a fair weather friend, you need to dump them fast and furious, okay? You need to get rid of them and you need to run towards people who you know are going to speak life and speak health into you. I'm gonna pull Dave and Stacey Chamberlain up here. Their daughter, Savannah, was 20 year, is 20 years old. I believe I like to talk about my brother and Savannah in present tense because they're alive right now. <laughs> She's 20 years old. She um, committed suicide on March 23rd. And um, I asked them if they would be willing to come up here. And, and I know some of us are, even as I was getting ready for this, you know, the whole thought of, is it too soon? Is it too soon? And I wrestled with that too. I just think that's a lie from the enemy. It's always going to be too soon. And um, we need to, I know, and I'll come back over here. <laughs> but we need to start telling our stories now um, while we feel them, you know. And so um, I wrote down a couple of questions for Dave and Stacy, and we're going to um, watch Dave because some of you are nervous. Like, we only have a few minutes, and we know how Dave can talk. So <laughs> that's why Stacy's holding the mic. <laughs> we'll decide. We'll decide. Um, but here is my first question for them is, why did Savannah say she took her life? Well, I'm going to read what she wrote in her journal. Put your mic up just a little bit closer. I'm going to read what she wrote in her journal. Um, and this is over several different time periods. Um, okay, I've been at war with my mind for 13 years. Life isn't for everyone, and this world and the people in it were way too much for me. People can die from depression. It's nobody's fault, I just cannot deal with my mind. Every day is not even a battle, but a full-on war in my head. I'm at the point where I don't wanna get better. My sick, suicidal mind is back. Something inside me says everything is hopeless and meaningless. Wouldn't it be such a burden off of everyone if they didn't have to deal with my BPD all the time or my sensitivity? Even though people will grieve, it will be such a burden lifted from everyone, there is honestly no hope for me. It shatters me to leave you all, but it shatters me more to live in my mind 24-7. I was in an unbearable amount of pain and suffering my whole life, and now I'm finally at peace. I wish I had the strength to stay, but the demons have taken over and the depression has won. Um, whew, let's just take a little breath. <laughs> My next question was, and I don't have a lot of transition statements between these because, like, what can I say? Um, but how did the church fail, Savannah? And by church, I mean capital C because um, you, you've been in a few different places, and I know she felt failed by them often. So did my brother. A lot of us with mental illness feel failed by the church. I'm talking about church big C. If you know what I mean, I mean overall believers, Christians, not specifically center point. But how did Savannah feel the church had let her down, had failed her? 
you know, I came up with three basic words that kind of put it into perspective. Number one was ignorance. Number two was apathy. And number three was absence. And the ignorance, again, is not that somebody is stupid. It's that they're without understanding. And Savannah's problems went back 13 years ago. We fought this for 13 years. And 13 years ago, there wasn't a lot of people talking about mental illness. And she wasn't dipping down into the state of depression. She lived in the state of depression. And so because people didn't understand the way that she perceived things and the way that she reacted, they couldn't help her. They didn't know how to love her. And that's a lot of her friends. That's adults, and that's ministry leaders over time. And as a result of that, she would say and do things because of how she would perceive people were talking to her, and she would alienate them. And that even goes to adults. And so there was an ignorance there of why was she reacting the way that she did, and why did she do the things that she did? And that led to apathy, because in part, people would say things, Savannah would react, and it wasn't always pretty. And so as a result of that, what they felt was their hurt and their anger towards Savannah. And we were on the phone many times when she was a child with parents trying to apologize that our daughter hurt their children when inside my daughter was dying day by day. And, and, it, and I get it because my daughter hurt other people by the things she would say and do. But there at times was little understanding as to why she did what she did. And that led then to the absence that I speak of. And the absence was this, that even some ministry leaders in youth groups and, and, and other groups um, stopped pursuing her. And she was left alone and isolated. And she was aware of all of this. And that led to even more depression because she felt confirmed and validated that she was not worthy. Well, and I think, um, first of all, I want to thank you guys because I can't imagine how difficult this must be. Um, but I think this is something for us to be aware of as a church, um, North and South Campus, is creating safe places for families. You have no idea what some of us are walking through. You have no idea what some of us are facing. And it's very easy to make knee-jerk reactions and instead of asking questions, getting to know someone, coming alongside of someone, asking how you can help. And so the next question I had, and this is not to toot our own horn, this is to celebrate what Jesus is doing here at Center Point. But I wanted to ask um, for you to talk a little bit about Savannah's experience here, um, specifically like with the church as a whole. And then she had an incredible small group and um, a little bit about her experiences here. It just I know you all the way Sorry. up, so North can hear you, because okay. we don't want North to not hear you. Okay. <laughs> um, well, the very first Sunday that we came here, something about mental health was mentioned from the stage, and she immediately felt a connection here that she hadn't felt previously. Um, and then you did your Shattered series, the first part of it, and afterwards she went up to you and talked to you, and she showed you her arm full of scars, and you touched them, and you said, you know, wear these with honor. This is a reminder of where you've been and how far you've come. And she went home and just cried about that and said, finally, I feel like somebody understands me. And um, 
then she started going to the Grove, and she went with her brother. It's the only way she could do it. <laughs> um, and she started going to a small group that Isaiah leads. And, boy, there was just a bond there with a bunch of those kids that, that loved the Lord and shared experiences like that where she could um, tell her story and talk about her struggles. And she felt completely not judged, um, 100% comforted and supported in that group. And it was just really neat. And she does feel or did feel this, this church really fought the stigma. And she just had such a love and connection to this place because of that. It meant a lot to her, and which in turn meant a lot to us. Yeah. Um, what would she want people to know who are contemplating taking their lives? What would she, if she were here? Yeah, and she and, is. But and, and, and I also, we speak obviously in the, in, in the present tense that Savannah loves God and understand that she had three different psychiatrists say that they were, she was the worst case of suicide ideation that they'd ever seen. And so she was an extremely unusual case. But here's what she would say. Love God. Know Jesus. Lean and trust in him. Lean on him. Trust in him. And she did that. My daughter had several major suicide attempts, and after every one of them, she recognized and realized that God had preserved her life for that long. And so she was unashamed about talking about mental illness. She was unashamed about talking about her love for the Lord. And the dichotomy is that she wasn't afraid of death because she loved the Lord so much. But she never wanted mental illness to capture anybody else. She always was reading and online, helping those that also shared the same issues. She actually was part of a group that would send out messages and cards for those that had depression, those that were contemplating. She did not want that for anybody else. And in her right state, there were times where she didn't want that for her. But she was such a severe case that, again, Satan was digging his claws into her and to our family and yet the end result for us on earth was devastating. And we would not want anybody else to go through that. But for her, um, we know that she's alive and well now. And so one of the things that, that she said this in some of her many writings was that she wanted to be the somebody that makes everybody feel like a somebody. Yeah, and she did that. She did that. Thank you guys so much. You guys can go. I want to end you with this. This is something I wrote a couple months ago as well. It's time for the church to get real about mental illness. I'm pissed. I'm pissed because how much longer are we going to be silent about the things that really matter? We're so caught up in what we can control and explain and see. We're ignoring the issues that are harming our loved ones. We're attempting to solve anxiety and depression with Bible verses and sweet cliches. We're more concerned about our reputations than we are that people are dying. We tell people not to be two-faced, but we create church cultures where that's exactly how we behave because we're afraid to tread in the gray of grace. If something isn't black and white, then we wash our hands of it. If we can't figure something out or it sounds too worldly, we throw it away. 
Why can't we talk about addiction, suicide, mental illness? Why do we make it so difficult for people to come forward and say, I have a problem and I don't know how to fix it? Why do we imply that pastors cannot actively struggle with mental illness? Why do we imply that people have to keep their addiction secret? Why are we so afraid of people who have suicidal thoughts? Why do we so easily dismiss counseling and anxiety and depression med- medication? You must realize that our ignorance, our fear of being uncomfortable, is sending people to their deaths every day. We often say suicide is the most selfish thing a person can do. But here's the thing we aren't giving people a choice. We foster stigmas and clauses and cultures where people have to act one way on the outside while they are screaming for help on the inside. And no one can live that way. We have to be okay when someone questions, when someone doesn't know if they believe anymore, when someone is in such a dark place that he or she can't see where to take the next step. We have to be okay with the mess. I get it. I was there. I remember feeling so helpless, so hopeless, wondering if God even exists. I remember being so dismayed with myself. I was embarrassed. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't know how to get back go back and right all the wrongs. I didn't have a freaking clue about anything. I was face down in our bedroom, alone and exhausted, and that's when I heard the voice of Jesus. I love you, even here, even now. That's what we forget. Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. And if you think you're healthy, you better check yourself. Woe unto us to only create churches where the healthy are comfortable and thriving while the sick are left to stumble around in the dark outside. Woe on us for creating churches that are more comfortable with the lies, the perfect family, the perfect couple, the perfect kids, that we, are, that we act shocked when the image dissolves and the true dysfunction is revealed. Woe to us. Jesus couldn't stand the Pharisees and we've created entire churches filled with them. You guys, I'm pissed. Mental illness is killing more people than ever before because we haven't been bold enough to speak up. We have to be willing to start talking about the fact that the world is broken and so are we. We are broken spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. We are broken and so we will do broken things. And the church should be the last place where people are shocked about this. This isn't usually the case. So I'm over it, church. I'm over being silent and watching the people I love around me die. I'm done. I will be outspoken. I will make you uncomfortable because I will not stand by while the people, while people feel worthless and ashamed. And here's what I want to tell you. <clears throat> we have an incredible counseling ministry. We started a fund, the Chamberlain Garland Fund, um, so that we can help pay for your counseling. We will have counselings at, uh, counselors at both campuses, north and south, under the overhang. If you are hurting or struggling, please go out there. Our after-party folks will point you in the right directions to meet with them to sign up for counselling. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys can go ahead and stand. Would you do that with me? Would you stand, both campuses? So for a while, we weren't sure early in our marriage if she was going to live, and now that story is uh, saving thousands of other people um, that wouldn't live. And so, and um, unapologetically super, um, I said to say this, I don't say it a lot, super proud of my wife uh, for her courage and what God's using her to do. And would you guys also thank um, uh, individuals that have become really amazing friends and for their courage today and what God's done through this fund 
Um, I get to hear the stories every week. I got to roll in this week um, hearing about so many texts. We've had things air on radio where um, I, you think you know the impact it's having. You have no idea, but um, Dave and Stacy, um, I, I just want everybody to put their hands together to thank you for your courage and what you're doing. And so over the house, um, I, I just want to pray. You can uh, lift up uh, your hand, both campuses, to just agree with me um, together right now. But I want to pray for those people that are in the physical rooms today um, and that God has sovereignly ordained for you to be here at this time in this place. Others are going to hear this message in a few days, a few weeks. But can we just pray right now for God to just move to do what he wants to do through these words, that it wouldn't be a momentary emotional thing, but literally the enemy would be silenced and the shackles and chains of mental illness and depression and shame and anxiety, though they may never go away fully this side of heaven, they would begin to just silence the enemy and fall away in such a way that even with their scars and even with their battle, they can be a light and a voice for the fact that Jesus is better, Jesus is good, and there is hope even in the darkest nights of the soul. So would you just outstretch your hand? Can we just pray in this moment? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you are not surprised by anything. And Lord, for some of us, I don't know where we're coming from. I don't know what we've come out of. What I know with as much humility as I can muster is that we, we're way behind on this. And so we all need your grace. But Lord, we're, we're walking into churches and uh, in rooms where we've so misunderstood you. When you went to a cross 2,000 years ago, you knew every detail. You knew every bit of our struggle. You knew every way that it would go down. And on the cross, Paul put it so eloquently, and he knew it better than most of us, that while we were dead in our sin, literally at our worst and on the cross, knowing us at our worst, he died for us anyway. And that there is resurrection power that is available to us in this moment. And so I pray for those that Lord have walked with somebody who has struggled that today the chains of shame and guilt would fall off and they would begin to see themselves as you see them. I pray for the individuals who are walking through the struggle right now. I pray that you would lead them to take maybe the most courageous step of their life that goes counterintuitively against everything that they feel right now to not be silenced to not be isolated, but to move into a place of community, to move into a place to, to begin to voice what they feel inside of them, that you would begin to move them toward the place that they would find healing and they would find hope in you. But I, I pray, God, that today, that you would do what you wanna do in the hearts and minds of thousands of people that are struggling and they need to know that there is hope and you one time in history raised dead things to life and you can raise dead things to life again. As so I pray in this moment, if they don't feel it, if they don't see the way forward, there would be some bit of faith inside of them to believe that you can, that you will, and that this is a season, it is momentarily, and you are able to bring dry bones to life once again and you are able to bring your power into the most bleak and dark circumstances and bring life and hope out of that again and so we are praying that and we are believing that 
in Jesus' name. And so it's in Jesus' powerful, resurrected name we say amen. And would you join me all over the house? Let's praise Jesus. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this message, would you do us a favor and rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher? You can actually now listen to us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Basically, this just helps us get the message of Jesus out to more people. And the other thing I would say is we would love for you to join us at one of our gatherings. One of the things we work really hard at is to create a safe place for people to be able to ask questions, to be able to investigate and grow in their faith if they're longtime followers of Jesus. And one of the things that we say a lot is regardless of what background you're coming from, you can belong here before you believe. And so if you want more information about our church, our location, service times, just go to our website at centerpointfl.org.